folks, this is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. This episode is a continuation of the series on leadership and emergencies, the art and science of resuscitation. Be sure to go check out episode seven of the podcast, where I give a quick rundown on leadership and emergencies and how we can work towards improving our individual and team performance in anesthesia crises. I caught up with my colleague, Dr. Ryan Mountjoy last week to discuss the use of cognitive aids in emergencies. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from him. But before I introduce Dr. Mountjoy to you, I want to throw out a little bit of a PSA as this episode is coming out just days before the 2020 U.S. election. Now, I'm not going to weigh in on political ideology on this podcast, and I'm not going to virtue signal about how you should go vote. But I mean, you should, because our democracy is most functional only when we participate in it. But what I really want to say to you is that regardless of your political leanings, if you're on the left or the right, if you identify with the Republican, Democrat, Independent, or Green Party, or wherever you land on the political spectrum, remember, we have far more in common than that which divides us. As my mother says, we are all just walking each other home. Regardless of the outcome of the election, we have an opportunity to work together to create a future that is truly worth living in. I could go on, but I won't, because this podcast is not about that. It's about how to master your craft as an anesthesia provider. But at times, there's going to be deeper currents or more powerful themes going on in current events that I've got to at least touch on. So remember, even if you're finding this episode after the 2020 election, the people in your life who you may feel most at odds with, those people, you know who I'm talking about, you likely have more in common with them than that which divides you. Question and debate your differences. That's the privilege democracy gives us but let's stand on our commonalities. It's my great honor to introduce to you Dr. Ryan Mountjoy, a board-certified physician anesthesiologist with Spectrum Healthcare Partners in Portland, Maine. He is the co-director of Orthopedic Trauma and Total Joint Anesthesia and the co-director of Regional Anesthesia and Acute Pain Medicine at Maine Medical Center and the site chief of anesthesia at Maine Health's Scarborough Surgery Center. He completed his anesthesia residency at Stanford University and then pursued a regional and ambulatory anesthesia fellowship at Duke University, where he worked prior to moving to Maine. He has been practicing in the Portland area for four years and enjoys time with his family, anything outdoors, and sampling Maine's prolific food and beverage scene. And so just to drive home that previous point, if you Venn diagrammed Mountjoy's life with mine, we have a ridiculous amount in common with one another, and I have no idea how he votes. With that, let's get to the show. Well, Dr. Mountjoy, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, man. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah, yeah. I think this is the earliest podcast I've ever done. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're still before 6 a.m. here right. uh, at the surgery center catching each other. So uh, so what's, what's the central message that you really want anesthesia providers to understand about the use of cognitive aids during emergencies? Well, first of all, thank you for having me for talking about this important initiative today. I would say the central message is that medical knowledge itself is increasing so rapidly that it's simply impossible for our brains to hold on to everything we need, and especially in, in an emergency, to be able to rapidly recall that information. There's a lot of context of negative memory formations during a critical event that impede our ability to access that information rapidly. So... If we have the ability to have succinct, clear guides that can help us guide therapy in those rare events, we really are apt to use them. That's interesting what you just mentioned. You said that there's these negative contexts of other emergencies 
that stick with us? I mean, is that is that an impedance to performance in emergencies, you think? So usually in our memory formation types, and this goes into some of the, the psychology of how we form memories, it goes back to Sesame Street and that we form memories based on pattern matching. One of these things is not like the other. And that helps us in rapidly recognizing a problem and going towards it. The problem with that is that you can form tunnel vision because you focus on a, a couple things, but you may miss the broader differential of things that are more rare, but uh, also need to be in play. And I think that's one of the things that the focus on memory formation and the lack of recall of distant events during these critical stressful points really um, impede us in those in taking care of those patients. That's interesting. So what do you think are some other common ways that providers or teams struggle during emergencies and, and how would cognitive aids help improve those outcomes? So I think as in other industries, the airline is one that comes to mind where you have rare but critical events, communication is one of the central themes that provides us an outlet to actually have a successful outcome. None of us practice in silos. Rather, we're, we function best when we're part of the team and the team is working cohesively and the communication is happening in a constructive manner. And crisis management theory teaches us that amongst other tenants, closed-loop communication such as John, get me the oxygen, Mary, get me the Ambu bag, things where you're actually focusing on somebody's eyes, get them the target and get them that, that response. That, that form of closed loop communication is key. Knowing your environment is also really, really important where we practice in a lot now of offsite locations that aren't necessarily where we trained from the traditional OR setting and things that are critical in those events may not be where you think they are. So being able to realize and predict and know where your environment is and where the things are in that environment are, are crucial. Crisis checklists are just one part of that management pie that allows us to have those rapid access to information where we otherwise might forget it in those stressful situations. And like I said, designating roles is one of the key factors of crisis management. And you know that in a code, there are plenty of people, and often most of those people don't have a task. And so by giving somebody who knows something about medical knowledge, it doesn't need to be a physician or advanced practitioner. It can be anybody who really understands how to read, essentially, a cognitive aid, can give somebody a role right then. So that designation can be key. So specifically, like you, you would designate someone in a, in a medical crisis to be like the checklist person. Yeah. And how this works ideally is where you simulate it first to try it out in the lab where you have different people who are acting as the reader. We often find in crisis situations that there isn't a clear leader. We hear that all the time. Who's running this code? The ones that really are successful are the codes where you have a leader who is stepping back and assessing the situation from a 30,000 foot view, as opposed to a lot of us want to be busy with our hands because we're proceduralists. We think we're going to be doing something helpful by diving right in. Rather, stepping back and being able to assess the whole situation from a different vantage point is key. And that's another spot where the reader can be that position to where they're not intricately involved in one 
detailed task. Rather, they can be making sure that we're going down the list of things that we should be thinking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why do you think it's so hard in medical emergencies, and in the OR specifically, that we often don't have like a clear leader? Like you, you've got a proliferation of well-trained people. Like you just said, you hit the code button, you're going to get a lot of anesthesia providers quickly. You're going to get a lot of nurses and other people, maybe surgeons and surgical residents all coming into the room. Where's the struggle? There's usually like one anesthesia provider or a team of anesthesia providers who are on that case. Why are they not clearly designated as the leader from the get-go? Why do we struggle with leadership? Well, I think part of it is the human nature of maybe not just medicine, but other fields as well, but an air of hubris in that all of us should know this information immediately available at all times. And so the leader should be anybody, frankly, in the room. And and that, that can put us into some problems because if you don't have that clear leadership structure of somebody who can, again, step back and assess the whole situation, you end up having these rather type A people, who we all are, trying to manage it independently of one another. And that's just not going to lead us to the right answer. Being able to have somebody designated early who is the leader. And again, I don't I don't make claims as who that person should be, but somebody who has been in these situations before and can have the ability to step back and designate roles and tasks. That's who a leader should be in the room. Yeah. And, and is that person, I guess to tease that out, that person necessarily doesn't need to be the one with the checklist in their hand they might offload that task to someone else to say, hey, follow this checklist for us. Or Exactly. And it probably shouldn't be the person who is the leader because the leader is going to be saturated with other tasks to do. And like I said, there's usually quite an abundance of people in the room. So if you have somebody who has some degree of medical literature knowledge, just the words that are on this, these aids, that can be the person who can be the reader. The reader and the leader are going to be intricately connected because they're going to be yep. going down the list and making sure they're getting tasks assigned and completed. But having that ability to have somebody separate from the leader who can guide that person through various therapies is a useful use of your team. Yeah, yeah. So research has shown that using checklists improve outcomes, but we don't often use them or maybe use them effectively. So what, what other barriers do anesthesia providers or other... Uh, healthcare providers encounter in the use of checklists? Why aren't we using these all the time with some degree of fluidity? So with cognitive aids in particular, there's there's two most commonly cited reasons for their failure. And as part of this area of, of, of my interest in medicine, I did a project on this in, in fellowship at Duke University about the mindset behind cognitive aids and the barriers to getting them in. And the two most commonly cited are providers should know this information already. So again, that air, that air of hubris that you, you got to check your ego at the door here. And if you don't, you're going to get into problems. That That's the most commonly cited reason. Teams that really work well together are ones that can check again that ego at the door and work through a list and be prepared to say, I don't know what this is. Can I have help? That That's where you're going to see leaders come out of it. The second one is, okay, we have a cognitive aid. How do you use it? So there's sort of four pillars of employing cognitive aids successfully. You have to create them. There are plenty out there, and I don't advocate for one or the other, but see, sort of feel them out, see what you like, 
see what you like from the format. But create is the first pillar. Familiarize yourself is the second. How is it formulated? Do I like the tabs? Do I like the font? Things like that. Use them and then integrate them. So there's really those four key factors. If you plop cognitive aids down in an OR and said, I did it, that's really only the first one is create. You have to familiarize yourself by simulating them ideally, you know, in a controlled environment where you're outside the stresses of a actual human case, but be able to challenge yourself, fail, figure out what, what works and what didn't work in the simulation lab, and then start going to the last two, which are use them effectively and integrate them into your health system. If you don't have all four pillars, these aren't going to be as successful as they could be. Yeah, yeah. So what would you say to, to smaller groups out there, teams like, you know, here in, in the main medical center universe, we have access to really nice high fidelity simulation centers for our staff, for our residents and SRNAs. What would you say, you know, to the folks out there at really small institutions that may not have access to a, like a legit sim lab in terms of how to get familiar with their cognitive aids and how to actually practice them outside of real emergencies? Most small groups still have some degree of regular meetings, whether it be staff at a, at a you know, pre-work meeting breakfast style or a practice management meeting at some point. The, the point here is that all members of the team have to be comfortable with using them. So it really takes a, a champion of somebody to, to bring this to a group and say, first of all, I want to give you a talk about these. What are these, number one? and go through again some of the barriers for their use. And then number two, start handing them out and saying, what do you think about these? Let's look at them together. And again, that's every member of the team. It's not just the advanced practitioners, it's, it's everybody in the room who can be potentially called on to use these uh, in a crisis. So if you don't have access to simulation, which uh, to your point, a lot of places don't, I would still use that opportunity of, of small meetings that you have likely with your group uh, to be able to go over these and see if they'd be something that would help you. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to something we've, we've touched on a couple of times. You've said that a lot of anesthesia providers have this attitude of, well, we're, you know, everyone should just know this. Everyone should just have this information memorized. I took a look at your poster presentation from Duke when you did your uh, fellowship project and you found that in fact, not everyone knew like key elements of, really important interventions like, like dosaging for uh, dantrolene or uh, lipid emulsions for local anesthetic toxicity. So we have this attitude that everyone should, should know this information, but what would, what would you say to folks that, that are out there who ha kind of have that attitude and approach cognitive aids from like, I don't need that. I'm an anesthesia provider. I'm an expert already. Yeah. It's, it's like we said, probably the most commonly cited barrier for these is people's own arrogance in, in, in a sense of using that word of, of knowing all this information at the drop of a hat. The survey that we did at Duke focused on our ambulatory surgery center where providers there have an average of five to 10 to 15 years of experience. This was not a new location. This was not a new group of staff. This was a small knit group of people who only worked at the ambulatory surgery center and had been there for years. So when we looked at this rapid recall of information of two uncommon events, local anesthetic toxicity and malignant hyperthermia, what was the treatment dose for each of those therapies? Over 75% in each group 
did not know the answer or the answer was wrong. Interesting. So to that, I'd say if you had your surgery at a surgery center or anywhere, do you want to be in that 25% where they know the answer? Or would you rather have this group say, boy, I haven't seen that in a long time because of my practice or just because it's a rare event. If I have a ability to leave my thoughts and ego at the door and say, where's that piece of paper for that dose? I want that provider. Yeah. So we need to normalize the use of checklists. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and if, if people need a more colloquial example, you don't have to think far back from the U.S. Airways crash where uh, Captain Sullenberger piloted the, the aircraft in four minutes from a complete engine failure to the Hudson River and saved 155 lives. While using a checklist. While using a checklist in a critical event that he had thousands of hours of flying and so did his first officer. I don't believe either of them had been in that situation before. And frankly, the cognitive aid that they used, which was total engine failure, it was actually supposed to be used for one when they're at higher altitudes. Yeah. So even then they were in a situation that they had never been in before. So how are you going to recall information from your past when you've never been put in that situation? So being able to flip to an aid, quickly decide what to do in four minutes, it saved 155 lives. Yeah. I think it's interesting going back to the, you know, to, to this drilling down on this point of like hubris and arrogance is, is that it's a, it's just a shift. I think for anesthesia providers to recognize that to be maximally effective, to actually operate at an expert level you need to incorporate cognitive aids because the literature is clear that people don't remember things on their own. Right. So if you can remember that tip, like your, your performance is actually going to be better than maybe what you think it might be. It, it, it's a, it's a strange concept for a lot of people to know that you can actually be smarter by using these. And, and if that is the barrier that people think that they should already know this information, quite the opposite. This allows you to stretch your knowledge even further. You know, when, Interesting side bit to note is that medical knowledge ourselves are increasing so rapidly, especially with the advent of pharmacogenomics and the effects of our individual drugs on people. That'll likely be the next sort of scientific shift that we see in our in our careers. But that information is rapidly increasing. And so we never finish learning in medicine. And those who think they do when they finish training are going to be the ones that are going to be in dangerous situations. You got to be able to keep learning, keep your keep your brain open and and use your brain for things that are routine, but if you have issues where it's rare, be able to cite some inf information quickly at the drop of the hat by using these. Yeah, yeah, especially in those uh low frequency, really high importance crises in the operating room. Right. So there are a lot of different cognitive aids out there. Uh, do you think it matters which one or are there elements of, of cognitive aids that people should look out for? Should they, should they build their own from scratch or use one that's already been developed? Because there are some out, that are out there that are that are free and available. Yeah, that's uh, a good there's, point. A, there's some also, there's obviously other ones that you can pay for. I think the f one thing you got to think about is applicability to your institution because some of these things for example a, a massive hemorrhage or a massive blood loss you'd really want to know the lab number the blood banks number which tubes to use and those may actually be different at different institutions of course they are for some of those details so 
I think how cognitive aids are best utilized is figure out what style works for you. There are some that are digital and hyperlinked. There are others that are books. People learn by different ways, but have one common thread of that um, of the aid itself, and then customize it and be sure that you can actually use it in your institution and have the information you need for your site specific with the drop of a hat. You shared a, a case study during your Grand Rounds presentation about a power failure at an ambulatory surgery center. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that case and whether or not, I mean, I can't imagine being, you know, deep in the halls of a surgery center with no windows and not have power immediately and, and whether or not the providers utilize checklists. That. I thought that was kind of an interesting moment. So this was a situation that happened about 10 years ago where a small plane crashed into a city's uh, generator or power supply that linked to the hospital. And as you can imagine, the hospital uses a lot of things for electricity. And this includes intensive care ventilators, everything that's used in the operating room, so uh, this is by secondhand knowledge, not myself personally, but what happened is there are a lot of ways that you can use light sources from your phones and your watches and your laryngoscopes, but the group where this happened at had actually simulated this in the years prior in their simulation lab. So they're doing a case and then the whole sim lab just goes dark. So the people who had been part of this real situation had actually trialed this and had seen it in the lab, which helped them have success. Again, like I said, they mobilized their resources to get more help out, to get light sources out. They actually went to the medical school and the nursing school that were just part of the building and, and got those students out to go ventilate patients in the wow. ICU when the batteries were failing. But those situations are incredibly rare and yet catastrophic if they're not handled correctly. Cognitive aids, such as the ones that we've talking about, can include these situations where you may not be able to sim that, again, if you're in a smaller location. But if you're in a down time, you've, you've got a long case and you've got something you want to read, check that page out. It's sort of a choose-your-own-adventure to go through these books <laughs> and, and read them. But power failure is one that if you can read through it and say, oh, that makes sense. I might not have thought about all those things I need to. Yep. You have that information on one page. And it's something that, again, can have a good read for you during the day. Yeah, and I think that story highlights the the power of rolling through these crises in a simulated environment. And, and I would say for the folks out there that don't have a high-fidelity sim center available, you know, if you can, like you said, have a department meeting where you have breakout rooms or something, or even just like tabletop walking through a scenario, or any kind of low-fidelity simulation, I think the most powerful thing that comes from those for me is the ability to think through a scenario when you're not under time pressure. You right. know, we have emergencies in, in real life and then you've got to do the next case. You've got to keep going. And there's often not time to sit down and really process and say, Hey, how could we improve that? Or wow, that was, yeah, I, that actually could happen. And we just kind of go on about our day. But even in a low fidelity situation, if you can have these kinds of experiences, look at your crisis checklist, does the crisis checklist need to get improved? Did the team discover things that you could, you know, uh, improve about your system or the team communication or whatever it might be? Those can be really powerful moments for improving the way you do things in real life on the job. Absolutely. And and I wouldn't say that every group needs to have a simulation center. That's clearly just not feasible. But as part of continuing medical education for renewing your license, you know, th those sort of, of 
administrative things we all have to do. Simulation is becoming one of the key factors and things that you can do to advance your, your license. Uh, so I'd, I'd definitely put in a plug for trying out some of those if it fits your schedule yeah. to be able to practice in, a, yeah. in a, that simulated environment. I think crisis checklists are, are kind of at an intersection between system design and human performance or human functionality. Because you can design a really good checklist, but then however it's used or utilized really influences the outcome in, t in that particular situation. Can you speak a little bit about that, about like the idea of yeah. this, like the way we design systems, but yet we're humans that operate in those systems. And it's, it goes kind of back to the four tenets of cognitive aids. And if you just, you, if you just design it and that's it, the human brain is not going to use it because you haven't made those previous memories about using it. Remember, it goes back to pattern matching and things that we've seen before is how we make future choices. So when cognitive aids are being developed, I'd look for groups that have strong backgrounds in the cognitive psychology of how you actually make a cognitive aid, such as the color, the format. These things are a little dry from the psychology perspective, but they've been vetted to the point that the human brain sees red and thinks fear and thinks, you know, I need to look at these things first. And that's how some of these aids are designed to do is play off of the, the reptilian brain that we have when we go into in a critical event because we yeah. get tunnel vision. And really what we want is a Dr. House with us there sitting with a whiteboard and, and giving all the differentials. And we're not going to be able to do that in a yeah. situation. So designing the aid, let the experts do it. I think it's already been done so much that then when you throw in the human component to it, when you're meshing the systems perspective, like you said, just make sure it meshes well with your institution and that it's relevant to the phone numbers and the things that you need to do for your place, that'll instantly give it more credibility yeah. to where this actually is part of your institution, not a third party vendor that you, you brought in and plopped down on the operating room right, right, right. in a seizure machine. It right. won't be used. Right. What would you tell residents in SRNAs about getting functional with cognitive aids during their training programs as, as they're becoming anesthesia providers? So first of all, I'd say read the cognitive aids during long cases or use them to prepare for cases by thinking ahead of the possible scenarios during your case. If you're on OB, for example, look up the massive blood loss or the amniotic fluid embolism or, or those cognitive aids that you can actually look at before an event happens. It acts as a real-time study guide for you in preparing for a case. I'd say secondly, take advantage of any simulation that's offered in your training program, even if it's uh, farmed out to somewhere else. Yes, they're very stressful and you, you feel like you're under the microscope, but every simulated session is meant to advance your, your own personal knowledge and really give you a chance to simulate the things that you'd much rather simulate in the lab right. than in real life. Um, finally, I, I would say the culture change is key of everyone on the team is as important as everyone else. When residents and, and SRNAs and other students are learning, there's often this hierarchy of knowledge that can hamper a critical event from going well when somebody may think they have an idea but are afraid to mention it. So, Wow, culture change is a gradual process. I would say the institutions that really do this well are those that have that collegial environment. And when you're looking for
corporate jobs, that might be something to think about is how do people interact with each other and how are their relationships? Um, because those are the people that you're going to be depending on during a critical event. Yeah. So you gave this grand rounds presentation on crisis checklists a couple of weeks ago. And then later that day, you actually had a code during one of your cases, which was actually happened to be with my wife. CRA. So uh, that, that should teach you to give grand rounds presentations uh, on, on checklists. The irony was not lost <laughs> on me. No, it, yeah, it was, it was pretty thick. It, it was, it was very well run. I believe in that situation because we had had a recent discussion and your wife did say, should we get out the checklist? And he did. And we did. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So I don't recommend practicing what you preach necessarily on yeah, the days yeah, of, yeah. but you could tell that a situation where people are amenable to knowledge like this will help overall, again, that culture of, of everyone being part of the team. And that, that was what I noticed the most in that situation is that was an unfamiliar environment for myself. Um, but the people who were there and the people that we work with at this institution in particular, um, thrive in that teamwork environment. And I think ultimately that led to the success of the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, Dr. Mountjoy, is there anything else that you'd like to say on the use of cognitive aids or crisis checklists before we sound off today? I've mentioned it a couple of times, but just want to hammer at home that overall as healthcare providers, we really need to check our egos at the door of the hospital. We function much better in a collegial team oriented structure where every member of the team feels comfortable voicing their concerns or suggestions. And cognitive aids are just one spoke of the wheel of crisis management theory that gives us access to rarely used information at the tips of our fingers, rather than having the hubris of thinking, I should know everything about every scenario that's possible in anesthesia. It's just not possible, and it's, it's a foolhardy endeavor to think you can't know. Seconds matter in anesthesia, and by using these tenets of crisis management theory, including the use of cognitive aids, I think we can be confident that we're providing the best and safest care for our patients. Oh, that's an incredible sound off. Well, Dr. Mountjoy, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm, I'm, uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and I'm really stoked to get you on the show. So thank you so much. Happy to be here and happy to come back at any point. Oh, I'm going to hit you up for that. There you go. <laughs>